You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week, we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you are new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Rob, where we talked about how investors with smaller trading accounts can get exposure to commodities and how to deal with intraday volatility and much more. Jerry, as always, great to see you. Great to have you back this week. How are things where you are in Florida? Things are great. It actually is getting a little cold here. I guess for maybe hopefully our last little cold snap before it starts getting incredibly warm and nice and I try to find a cooler place. But it's great here. Trading's been good. Um still keeping going i think the period that the, the trends that's most of them started around november it's a magical period for trend following it is indeed and we're going to talk a lot more about about that for sure and yes i actually heard also from my colleagues in florida that they were actually enjoying a little bit of cool weather i think you, it's usually pretty hot even by now so anyways let me do a quick market wrap as usual you know a lot of people have predicted that trend following won't do well when yields start to rise and bond prices start to drop. And since the first quarter of 2021 was the worst quarter of for U.S. Treasuries in 41 years, actually since 1980, according to the returns on the Bloomberg Barclays indices, I think you could say that this has been a good period to test this theory. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the results as we move into our conversation today. Another safe haven asset, namely gold, had a 11.5% decline to start the year. That's the worst since that's the worst start since 1982. And even U.S. junk bond market uh, is on track to post its first monthly loss since September. But, and there's always a but, the triple C rated junk, so the junkiest of junk debt, is set to end the quarter as the best performing asset class in U.S. fixed income markets with gains of about 3.5%. Now, while safe assets have been hammered during the first quarter, one asset class that continues to do well is commodities. And if you zoom out and look at the big picture, the really big picture, going back 270 years to be precise, you will see that commodity prices from 1750 to 1933 traded in pretty much a big trading range where Prices peak during times of war and touches the low of the range during peacetime. Now, then in 1934, President Roosevelt outlawed Americans' use of gold for contract savings and exchange, forcing citizens to deal with accounting units that would mark the beginning of a perpetual debasement by the Federal Reserve. This change ended the era of cyclical fluctuations in commodity prices and since 1934 and all the way to 2008, the index of commodities rose about 16 times. But in 2008, when everyone was bullish on commodities, until 2020, in just 12 years, the commodity index declined by 
78%. Of course, crazier things has happened. The bear market in US stocks from 1929 to 1932 lasted less than three years, yet it corrected the advance of US stocks from 19, sorry, from 1842 to 1929, i.e. 87 years of advance gone in just three years. So there are some mighty big forces at play at the moment, both in fixed income markets and commodities, which could make the next few years quite interesting. So, um, Jerry, I'm always curious to find out what has stood out to you since we last spoke, and both in terms of kind of maybe market moves or um, just something from a performance point of view. Well, I think we are starting to see, and we're in the midst of seeing some of the markets return to having different personalities. Some of the sectors, they all took off and rotate, and everything started going higher in the grains one by one. That's pretty much still intact, I would say. But in the currencies, we're starting to see uh, some diversification. I mean, unfortunately, because they were all going up and I was long them all. And that was more fun than now getting short Swiss franc and the yen. The euro is selling off. It is getting weaker, almost got short that, of course. All these time frames will differ from trader to trader. But then uh, the emerging markets, Mexico, Russia, Israel, Indian rupee, very strong still. So we're getting some diversification in the midst of these losing uh, positions. But uh, so I guess that's okay. Uh, or that's what we expect sometimes. So thing, gold and silver, I'm short gold, still long silver and platinum. Aluminum and copper are strong. Uh, lead and, and nickel are not. So it's interesting this rotation in the markets and the trends starting to take place. And it hasn't really devastated my equity, but I hope that the trends continue regardless. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this could still be just the beginning. Who knows? On our side, it was also a decent month in March, despite we saw some weakening of the trend barometer, which closed at around 41, which is a slightly soft, kind of neutral to soft level. Performance was mainly driven by the continuation of the bull market in global equities, while most other sectors really were flat. And maybe with the exception of softs, where all markets struggled in March and meets was, you know, actually okay. Our world volatility program had a quiet month, despite the excitement due to the Archegos fallout, or some people, as they call it, the Arch Egos, as some people have named it and had a flat month, realizing a small loss uh, of about 40 basis points. The strategy actually in terms of volatility did suffer a little bit from its long volatility positions and its S&P hedges, especially in the last couple of weeks of the month. But all in all, given the crushing of the volatility we saw overall in March, it will be interesting to see how long vol strategies, or more explicit long vol strategies have fared. Now, in terms of my own trend-following model, it was up 3.97% in March, leaving it up 9.34% for the year. Performance uh, mainly coming from what I call Group 3 models. These are fast-reacting models, up about 2%. Group 1, which is classical trend, did well as well. And Group 2 had a modest gain of 30 bips. In terms of sectors, attribution this month, equities were by far the best followed by bonds and uh, FX. And the worst sectors this month were soft, precious metals, and energy. 
And if we drill down to single markets, DAX and US 10-year notes and Japanese yen are the top three markets for March. And at the bottom of the, for the month, we saw German bunds, copper and lead. And in terms of trading activity, the system did exit some soybeans, soybean oil, palladium, cocoa, coffee positions this week. And it did get into some new corn and NASDAQ positions, but it was a super quiet week overall. And uh, currently the markets or the positions it it has positioned, or the markets it has positioned is, is what I meant to say, is only 12. So relatively small portfolio at the moment. And in terms of the riskiness, so to speak, the risk to stop, uh, meaning if all positions got stopped out on Monday, it should only lose around 7.98%, which is down again this week from about 8.81% last week. So again, relatively low risk at the moment and only six or seven trades overall this week. Now, I know, Jerry, that my camera for some reason is frozen, so you can't see me right now, but I'll just continue as this, since this is an audio-only experience anyways. Now, before we move on to some of the questions that came in from Marcus and Nathaniel and Nick, and thanks so much for sending those in, I want to talk about a podcast that Mike Covell did recently with a trend follower called Don Visoric of Purple Valley Capital because it encapsulates so well, I think, many of the topics that we have been talking about on our podcast for years. And I know you listened to it as well. In fact, you pointed it out to me. So thanks for that. And so I'm sure we both picked up different things from the conversation. But let me just start by throwing something out. And that is, you know, on one hand, you have these stunning returns for the last 12 or 15 months in Don's strategy, which is probably the rawest kind of trend following that I've ever seen in terms of, of performance. But of course, it was preceded by a huge drawdown of about 70% during the five year leading into that recovery. So the question is always, you know, investors want the last or the returns of the last 12 to 15 months, but they would never have stayed during the preceding drawdown. And that's something that Don also talks about. And, you know, I guess it comes down to, I'd love to hear your uh, point of view, but I guess it comes down to this thing about, you know, can we really stomach the ride? Because as much as it looks scary, it is a very hard track record to beat in the long run. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that stood out to me is that I can have difficult performance like that, not that sort of volatility, which is probably primarily due to his trading size, of course, the, you know, the number of risk units he has on at one time is a lot more than mine. But when I have these tough periods, I think it's for a different reason. So these systems that we trade, trend following, they all go through periods of problem performance. And he went through five years of no profits. And But if I go through a long period, it would be for totally different reasons than him. I was just shocked that he could st sit there and hang on. And you know, whatever you're going through, that's the most important thing. Are you still in love with what you're doing? Do you still disciplined and care about it enough to continue to do it and put your fate in, the, in those rules? And he was, and he got rewarded. And I thought that was pretty amazing. And he seemed so calm on the on the podcast and he seems normal and I reached out to him and got his his cell number and texted him and followed him on Twitter and hopefully one of these days we can speak on the podcast or clubhouse but it was really just amazing how different he is from me I wasn't jealous of his shorter term strategy I think that's part of 
the, what causes uh, these long-term periods of not making profits, way more long-term than Dunn or him. I was just listening to the trades that you've done, and I have no, I, I try to stay away from risk to stop. You know, that's just one thing I don't, like if my people tell me, hey, do you know what our risk to stop is? I like hang the phone up immediately. I don't want to know <laughs> because I'm so long-term. And uh, it's way more than uh, yours, let's say. But yeah, I was really shocked that he could sit through that and trade short term like that and wait and then get the big wins. And so in his strategy, it's just like our strategies. We want it to be, it's going to be dominated by these big winning periods and trades because we've done this back test and the back test says, hey, sacrifice everything for the outlier, look stupid on a lot of these trades, give back profits, take small losses, and hope, keep your fingers crossed, because historically, if you wait long enough, your strategy will pick up infrequent periods of mega moves, outlier moves, and then you'll be rewarded, and he did it. And so I'm always amazed and admiring people who could do that. Yeah, so a couple of things I, I, I wanted to touch on. From listening to the conversation, I wasn't sure what time frame he actually looks at. But what I did pick up was that he wanted to model some of the old timers, like the, the 70 types, 80s type trend followers, like Don, like Chesapeake, and, and a few other names. And certainly in terms of volatility and performance, I think he probably exceeded his goal in terms of that. But the, here's some, some of the things that, that I wanted to ask you about. So... I looked up his track record, and of course, as we know, it's been amazing the last couple of years, but it was very tough, as you rightly said. I did notice, and of course, you have to be careful with when you take these uh, numbers, but I did notice that he was running, at least so far, an annualized volatility of almost 48%. So my question, when I saw that number, it became a little bit of curiosity in terms of, well, if you run at that level of volatility... Yeah, you might be able to sit out a 70% drawdown, but actually is the risk of ruin, the risk where you completely blow up, quote unquote, actually not when you run volatility levels or, or, or at that scale. I'm not trying to be, you know, I, it's just that from what I've seen from other managers is that you can have drawdowns that are more than two times your annualized volatility or at least two times your annualized volatility. And if you're running close to 50%, you don't have much of a cushion if you get to that before you just can't continue. So so that was one of my, I mean, I'd love to hear Don's view if we can get him on the podcast or, or in Clubhouse one day. But that would be a little bit of a concern that I have. As you say, you know, I admire people who can go through it. And I think you can most likely, you're going to be able to do it for your own money, I think. And as Don really said very uh, openly, you know, very few investors stayed for the ride. And I understand that even though it is so refreshing, and I applaud him for being, you know, someone who can demonstrate to people that even after 50 years of this strategy, you know, having been, you know, clearly in operation with managers who are still in business, that it still works in the same way, so to speak, and then that you get rewarded for the pain you suffer. But how do you think about too much? I mean, how much volatility is too much volatility, do you think? Yeah, I think uh, he passed that point a while back for me, too much volatility. But you hit the nail on the head, you know, it's this risk of ruin. It's, yeah. And here's the big question, the technical question I want, I'd like to know from him. It's just deep in the weeds, you know, 
technically from a system building point of view, I would like to know the answer to this one question. When he's down 70%, is his trade level $300 or still Mm $1,000? You know, is it that original million that he's still basing his trades off of, risking 1%, let's say, or did he say, no, it's 300,000 because I'm down 70% on my initial million and how the hell did he come out of the hole if it's 300,000? And how the heck did he survive if he kept it at a million? <laughs> so, right. Yeah, no, I mean, very valid. Yeah. yeah, it's like when the rubber meets the road, you know, you, that's a big decision on his part. How does he handle his formulaic risk and put it on those positions? I'm, I'm viewing the spreadsheet that we all have that shows our AUM, our unit size, we're going to risk 1%. What's his AUM? He's plugging in down 70%. Yeah. And um, it's fun to do that. And I think, yes, I think he mentions quite a few of the old Richard Dennis and John Henry and Salem, I think, is one of his heroes. And those guys had volatility, but probably would not recommend it being down, ever being down 70%. You know, the big turtle rule was do whatever you can all the time to follow your rules. And if you start having these major uh, drawdowns that are starting to really bother you, then reduce your trade level twice as fast as you're losing. So if you're down 10, you trade, cut back your trading positions by 20%, et cetera. But it makes it so hard to come out of the hole because it makes it hard to lose more money as well. So I am really a fan of those type of, I mean, but I prefer to trade small from the beginning so I don't have to make those cutbacks and get myself in that situation. But yeah, he's pretty fascinating and interesting. I hope he continues to thrive. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, speaking from a little bit of experience, not personal experience, but the firm that I work for, of course, people know, as Covell also mentioned, we've certainly been in the 60s when it comes to drawdown many years ago. And I don't, you know, I wasn't working there at the time, so I can't say whether there was any change in how people felt, but always something that was very important. And I think is part of the philosophy is that you couldn't tell on Bill Dunn whether we were up 10% or down 10%, uh, so to speak. I mean, he just was very good and in terms of taking away the emotions, so to speak. But one of the things that, that we realized is that, or at least we tried to, and this is like 15, 16 years ago now, is to go on this journey to see if, you can de- if we can deliver trend following in a quote-unquote nicer package, as I call it, meaning we don't want to reduce the performance, but if we can do it with better drawdowns, if we can do it with lower volatility, that's certainly our aim, and, and so far that seems to be working, but you can't escape your drawdowns, you can't escape your flat periods, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that's for sure. Another thing that, I mean, your question, and I hope we do get the answer from Don one day live, your question is great, and I, I'm really curious about that. I had not thought about that side of things, you know, your account size or trade size. The other thing I would love to know, because he mentioned that he trades the crypto, so I just would love to know how much impact they, they had on that stunning return because of the massive trends that they have had. So, of course, that I think could be interesting. And the other thing that 
I think is quite interesting about, he talks a little bit about his investors and he's younger than you and I. So, so he talked about his investors also being younger, but just generally speaking about investors and what we're seeing, we of course have witnessed quite a lot of popularity for the cryptos. And we know for sure that they are significantly more volatile than anything we do or other people, other strategies. So I wonder whether this will allow for a general change to the perception of volatility and risk, meaning that this next generation of investors will not be scared when they look at a trend following performance record and actually say, yeah, you know, let's bring it on. I mean, this is exactly what I, I want. Whilst we as an industry, to, to a large extent, have done a lot to reduce our volatility because none of the institutional investors want it. But maybe there's a new segment of investors that actually really would like us to give it give them a little bit of volatility because without it, we can't deliver those stunning returns. They like the volatility on the profitable trades in the profitable periods, but Bitcoin's gets back down to 20,000. They're not going to be so happy. But yeah, people, if you can demonstrate a kind of a lottery effect, hey, if you invest with this guy, you might make a killing and double your money one of these days. There is a segment, especially young people, who might go for that. But Bitcoin is, you know, we maybe just a little bit of color to your your point about Bitcoin being more volatile. So, you know, it. so we don't care about that when it's more volatile, when we put the trade on, because we size it inversely Correct. to its volatility. But it has taken off, like a lot of markets, and the vol- volatility has double, tripled, quadrupled, or whatever. But it's not unprecedented. It's, you know, Tesla, and it even happens in currencies and stock, uh, other stocks and commodities, let's say, that the volatility when we put it on is X and it goes 10X. I mean, I know one trade I had five, six years ago, the dollar index, the volatility was 10 times when I finally got out of it. So so we have a way of handling that. And then, dis, and then Maritz and I, we ignore that later on, like we are with Bitcoin. So, you know, it's I'll wait and see about these crypto people. I think they're just like the rest of us. They have biases and they're say one thing when they're making money and lose and, and another when they're losing money. Yeah, no, that definitely will be interesting to see. I say if and when, but, you know, let's say if it happens, because it seems like, you know, Bitcoin has an amazing journey still to go when you look at the charts. You know, I, I, Moritz and I talk a lot about, especially when I was with Rob, the closed equity. So defending that closed equity. So the initial mm. capital and defending that line and moving that trade level up as we get, as we close out profits. So we're trying not to include crazy Bitcoin profits in our trade level. And so we're going to be very careful. And But if you're down 70%, I don't think that you can probably argue that you're defending <laughs> at some level. Everybody knows you're not only are you having a major drawdown from your peak, but you're probably having a pretty substantial drawdown from your capital base as Moritz and I define it. So I'm dead set against that. You know, I am like, here's my initial investment. If I'm above water, hey, I'm going to be just a crazy man and let it go and let it volatile and be volatile as long as I'm above my initial investment. And then I start to add in the realized profits at some point and make that a, a higher number, more a tougher hurdle to defend that as well. 
with my small losses. So, but yeah, no, down 70, no, I can't be in favor of letting your profits run because I guess a lot of that is just losing trades. And losing trades, they can add up. If you're trading large, 1%, I risk 30 basis points per trade before I, if I get out with a sm my small predetermined loss, I'm gonna be down 30 bips. So 1% on a lot of trades, a lot of those trades being highly correlated. I used to play that game. It sounds like the Turtles from 1984 and 85. So more power to them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Another thing that I thought was just uh, interesting in, in, in the wake of a conversation like, and that is that when people do look at trend following, and again, going back to this experiment, not experiment, but this experience is what I meant to say, where he had a five-year drawdown. I think a lot of people have had a five-year drawdown. We've certainly had that in, in, in our track record from peak to peak, so to speak. And of course, we know equities have had drawdowns that lasted 10 years or more before they came. But a lot of investors, when they look at these records, and they'll spend time you know, mulling over 20, 30, 40 years of, of track record, Still, they find, I think, it very hard to commit to a five or even or 10-year investment horizon. And, and what fascinates me about that is that if you go back and you look at some of these long-term track records, I'm sure including your own, and I just looked at, had a quick look, a look at our own at Dunn's back from 84, you know, 90% of the rolling five-year periods are positive. 100% of the rolling 10-year periods are positive, which is actually higher higher than the S&P 500 on both those timeframes, yet it is so difficult for people to commit to the trend-following part. But as soon as you ask them about their equity portfolio, yeah, sure, that's a long-term investment. And, you know, my retirement isn't for another 20, 30, 40 years, so I'm completely relaxed. And that, I just find a very interesting psychology that goes on in, in many investors' mind as soon as they move from the equity side to our part of the field. Yeah, they're you know they're wrong about that, and they and it, it'll change over time. It's one of the edges of trend following that the the more lumpy, probably the better your edge. And uh, but you know you and I don't even like lumpy. We don't want to wait that long. If we did a back test and it said for every risk that you take, you're going to make the most amount of money by having the but your drawdowns are gonna this system is gonna give you the biggest drawdowns from peak equity. It's going to do a wonderful job of protecting your capital, but it is going to be the lumpiest, and you're, but you're going to make more money than everyone else. We would probably say, show me something else, please. I really, you know, my, you know, and we blame it on clients. Oh my God, can we put this in a better package for the client? Because, you know, not me, because I mean, you know, oh no, it's for me. I, let me just tell you, I don't like these drawdowns and this lumpiness in these long-term periods any more than anyone else. And I remember Rich saying, you know, trend following, small prop, small wins turn into losses, big winning trades turn into losses, or big winning trades turn into really small profits, and get used to it. And that's 1983, and it's been nothing but, that's proven out in my experience, and no one likes it. We've got our fingers crossed that we're sacrificing every period, every week, every month, every reasonably good trade we're doing what's optimal to bag that huge winner. And it makes everything look crappy over the short run. And then we don't even know if we're going to get it. It's not so much that trend following doesn't work anymore. It's that we're not seeing these big moves anymore. 
And then once we get them, we're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's good. I knew this was going to happen. It's always happened. Don't lose faith. But it's very difficult. You brought up a really good point about Bill Dunn. Not, you couldn't see it on his face when he was losing money. But for all the great traders that I have run across, this is their one thing, you know. Salem was like the best at that. It's just never phased him. Just do the next trade, follow the system. Richard Dennis, the same way. The turtles were taught that. They do not, I do not want to see this on your face and have an impact whether you're going to do the next trade. I think if we're losing money and we're in a big drawdown, we have to be. Uh, proper risk managers. And so these losses should impact us, you know, as far as risk control and take and reducing our risk at some periods. But it's a rare person. And I'll guarantee you with uh, people like Rich and Bill who have these long track records of success, it, that is one of the big characteristics of, I don't like it, but it's not really impacting me from an emotional point of view, especially as it relates to making, having me change the way I do things. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that is so, so true. And I really, I was laughing when you talked about the whole point about how it's difficult for many investors to quite understand when they see trend followers being up, you know, a lot because of some open trade equity in these trends and then they reverse and you give everything back and, and it's like, oh, so why didn't you just uh, take the profits, right? And it's, yeah, that question seems to come up on a regular basis. Now, I also want to bring up some of the questions that you, or topics that you brought up in our exchange before going on air, so to speak. There were some talks or topics from a conversation that I had with Moritz. Do you want to get into that point? Yeah, I really enjoy, you know, going back and listening to the podcasts. Rob, you and Rob last week was really fun. And then Moritz, this is a good point to bring up with Moritz because he and I can go back and debate this issue. But it was, especially as it relates to Don and his great returns after the 70% drawdown. And I know one podcast recently, Moritz was saying, uh, Jerry risked 30, I'm taking it out of context to try to create some controversy here. But that's fine. There's not going to be much controversy when Moritz and I chat, you know, because we agree on most things. But he said, Jerry risked 30 basis points per trade. That's not enough. And quote, why bother? <laughs> so <laughs> I did an interview with Moritz yesterday for Real Vision, and he asked me the same question. <laughs> he was like saying, why are you so wimpy now? Why don't you trade large and you know try to make a lot of money? And one thing that you like to say, which I don't agree with, is there's no right answer. <laughs> so I don't agree with that at all. There is always a right answer. You know, uh, I don't know what that answer is. It may be done. It may be Chesapeake. It may be somebody I don't know. It may be that we'll, no one will ever get to the right answer. But I just like that as a um, concept. You know, I want to be a person who says I can improve. Maybe there's something out there I can do better. I can have a deeper understanding of trend following. And that sounds crazy. It's pretty simple. How can you have a deeper understanding? But I feel like that's what I've spent my life doing is understanding it better, even though it can be classified as not uh, greatly complex. So I do think that we all have these different opinions. And the fact that our performances are very similar, I don't think that's a good evidence that some people are doing things better. It may not show up in the performance over our lifetime or a short period of time. And they may be doing some things worse that kind of offsets their edges in certain uh, areas. But I think that, for instance, my description and, and Moritz's description of trade level and how we go about it and some of the fundamental principles that we 
utilized in our trend following vastly superior to everyone else. I mean, I don't care. I mean, it just is. And that's, you know, our opinion. But I do think on trading size and leverage, this is the one area that I think is open to everyone's personality. You know, I don't like this idea either of I want to find a system that suits my personality. Well, we just described trend following and giving back big profits and, and having stops far away and a risk to stop that is absolutely insane. That's not my personality. My personality is I want to make money and I realize trading is hard and counterintuitive. But when it comes to risk tolerance and risking 30 bips or 100 bips per trade, I do think that that's one area that people need to get right for their own personality because it has a tremendous impact on your ability to follow your rules. And I know that over time, I have traded too large. It has been a detriment to my ability to continue to follow my rules and not freak out. And to some degree, even the money management cutbacks are a deviation from system rules, which is possibly acceptable, but still not optimal because, you know, we should follow these entry, exit, stop loss rules. So that's one thing that Moritz and I can chat about. And then I just wrote down all of the things that go into stop losses and the risk levels. And it's so complex that we've never talked about it on this show, on the podcast, uh, that it would be fun to go through all of this to show people how it all works. You know, it depends on your stop loss size and your if you're using ATRs and your correlations and how you set up the portfolio as to how much you're going to risk per trade. How many markets do you trade? I trade 30 bips. I, I risk 30 bips per stop loss, but if I traded half as many markets, I would risk 60. Oh, okay, then that's better. That's no, the same. You know, I'm not any more risk of a risk taker. It's that I'm going to have twice as many trades if I'm only trading 50 markets versus 100. Yeah, no, I mean, there's so much to uh, unpack, which is why the journey of trend following is long and uh, and interesting. So, well, yeah, we should definitely, definitely do that. There was another point I saw you talk about, but I'm not entirely sure the bigger context of it. And it had to do with short trades. By the way, there is going to be a question, I think, later today about short trades. But where, what are your, what was your angle on that? And I know that you had or maybe some other points from my conversation last week with Rob. So feel free to, to bring all of those up. Yeah, well, I think, you know, th there was another question in the podcast with Moritz about short trades. And we've answered this question like a million times, you know. <laughs> and so it's, it's just funny that our answers don't resonate, you know, because what part about trend following too is that if we make this type one error, which is we take a trade that is unsuccessful, we have uh, right in place this stop loss, you know, so if the short, but we're always as humans trying to improve those entries and have a filter and not take these losses, even though they're irrelevant. And then once you get a hold of Bitcoin and Tesla and the soybeans, I just sit back and go, what am I concerned with? Why have I spent any time on figuring out a way to uh, not take a loss in an entry when I look back over November, December, and January and see my whole performance has been dominated by these amazing moves that thankfully I got into the trade 
And I just did nothing. I sat there. We're always trying to get rid of these shorts and these bad trades. But I think, as we've said, even though history has said that the shorts underperform the longs, you know, this can change. This can, they can get better. They're a diversifier for the longs. We saw that last year when a lot of the markets had massive downtrends temporarily. They didn't, a t- typical trend following wouldn't have booked all of those profits in the short currencies and energy, you know. Well, the, energy is for sure. Yeah. yeah, energy. So, but they do help and they do uh, help us sit through the bad periods and when the great, you know, long trades are not doing as well. So, and sample size, you know, including those short trades in and not segregating shorts versus longs, but closing our eyes and saying the average trade is X, and now I have twice as many trades in my sample size, that is a cornerstone of trend following and so many reasons not to talk bad about the shorts. Well, speaking of shorts, actually, I mean, and this is a point that you and I have heard, I think, many times over the years, and that is this thing about, oh yeah, but surely trend followers won't do as well when bonds turn and start moving down because they've been the most profitable sector for many trend followers and CTAs in the last, you know, 20 years or so. But as I said in my introduction, I mean, this quarter, we've actually had the worst uh, quarter for bonds, long bonds in the US uh, since 1980. So you would think that's a pretty good period to test out that theory. And as we know, Trend followers and CTAs were positive for the first quarter of 2021, even though bondholders were, you know, left hurting significantly. And I know that not all the profits came from short bonds. Maybe some of it did, and maybe mostly in March. I don't know, depending on when your systems turned. But I think it goes to the point that I think also you were making is we just don't know what the future is going to hold. So even though our historical backtest looks great, for long-sided trades and not so great for short-sided trades. I mean, a lot of that could be simply because it's driven by, say, the bonds. And if the bonds are going to turn for the next 40 years, who knows? That statistics is going to look very different in in, in a 10 years' time. Exactly. And that's why, you know, I said in previous podcasts, don't dig too deep. Just look at the surface, you know. Put these trades on, go with the trend, don't anticipate, don't analyze. Once you have a, a decent system... And you're in gear with that system and you're gear with the trends, you're done. Don't think about, you know, they write these papers, CTAs write these papers uh, that we're not going to make as much money on the downside, uh, shorting the bonds as we did on the upside because of the term structure. And then they'll say, well, but don't worry about it because in previous periods where the bond, where CTAs have been short bonds, other markets have done well. Well, I'm not going to give up on the bonds. You know, one thing that I, I don't know that I've ever seen in these papers is what was the ATR at entry? If the ATR at entry is very low, then our position might be twice what it has been historically in a short bond position. So you got to figure that part in. And then nobody could have predicted negative interest rates. And yet we stayed with yeah. it because of the trends. And another thing that I've done is I have the freedom to trade the single stocks. And I have a bank, some bank stocks in my portfolio, and they're going up due to the increase in rates. So I lo- so it's a long trade. I have a long trade on that's going to profit from the short bond trade. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, and maybe people just, I don't know if everyone is aware of the impact that 
higher rates can do. But if you take a 30-year bond, and of course we can see last year in May, the US issued uh, 30-year bonds with one and a quarter coupon, I think it was, and they were issued around uh, 100, so about par. Now those bonds in one year, given the small rise from about, I can't remember what it was at the low, 70 basis points on the 30-year, now we're at two point something. So that rise in yield actually has meant that the bonds have dropped something like 19% in price. And that's a pretty decent move. But then you could go back and say, well, hang on, what's the average rate of 30-year bonds if we go back 40 years or so? What would the average yield be? Well, it's around 6.5%. And so if you think, what is the price going to be on a 30-year bond with a 6.5% you know, uh, yield on a one and a quarter coupon, it's actually going to be 19 cents on the dollar. So if we go back to the norm, you could see some of these bonds drop, you know, 80% in price. And so that's the whole point. I mean, there are lots of trends. When you come from 5,000 year low in interest rates, you would think that there could also be some great trends on the downside in price, at least, should things go back to normal at some point. So yeah, I agree with you. We shouldn't give up on these things and we shouldn't make too many conclusions about what will happen with some of these uh, markets going forward. Yeah, that's you know that's why I like my statement, trend following plus nothing. I just get irritated yeah. when, not irritated, but I just shake my head when people are like, well, I like to use trend plus you know this or plus that. Not only does plus this or plus that have a material negative impact on your sample size and your robustness, uh, but it's totally unnecessary. You know, we're not here to try to trend following. Has no. I have my friends in the gold business or some of the commodity businesses. They're like, "Where do you think gold's going to go? Where do you think soybeans are going to go?" And I'm like, "Well, I have no idea." what's going to happen, where they're going to go, what the peak will be. I do know from my point of view, the right position and I've done my duty and that's all you need to do is uh, sit back and play the game. And we have such an edge when we look at the markets in that particular way. Yeah, definitely. We got some questions in that I'd like to get to, but I wanted to make sure, do you have anything else you wanted to bring up from some of the Well, we could talk about uh, the conversation you had with Rob last week for a couple of minutes, if you sure. wanted to do that. Yeah, so I really enjoyed that. You know, Rob is so funny. He is almost as funny as I am. I really admire that in a person. He's very witty, and he makes me laugh. And at the end of the conversation, you uh, mentioned that maybe Jerry and I will talk about uh, this conversation that you had had with Rob. Right. And he said, I'm sure he will. <laughs> it really made me laugh, and I listened to that more than once. He was just like, oh, God, this guy won't leave me alone. But, uh, you know, I know that fundamentally we agree on almost everything except a few nuances, and I really like him and respect him, and I don't want him to feel like dreaded to engage with me and stuff because I really engage, like engaging with him because he's smart and he is a little bit different, you know, not that I, I absolutely love Moritz as well. But yeah, so it's really interesting. And actually, I, I searched high and low, Niels, and believe it or not, I found something we definitely agreed on. And I really enjoyed his comments on that podcast about his trade level calculation, which I agree mm -hmm. with 100%. And it's the optimal way of doing it. And basically, he never changes it. If he makes money at the end of the year, he takes that's those right, profits yeah. and puts them somewhere else. And that's the ultimate because... 
We all have to, if we're running a business or trying to, I hate this word, compound our growth, we're going to leave that profits in there and change the trade level at some point in time and say, hey, I'm wealthier now. My clients have money now. I've got to trade my AUM uh, at some point or uh, an increase trade level. And it just introduces some random factors with our edge that are probably not material very much. You can make them less material, but he does the ultimate and he just keeps that trade level the same. So the bet size is the same. So he doesn't suffer from a string of losing trades possibly after having made uh, money. And uh, so his performance would look a little bit worse, even though it shouldn't. So I was really thought that was a really great idea. And it's I've often said, you know, if I had five billion under management, I would just distribute the profits every year at the end of the year and trade that five billion and not have this trade level I thing I have to deal with. But I don't have five billion, and I probably wouldn't do that if I did. So because I'd want to have six billion. But yeah, it was a really. Yeah. Good. I think another thing that I thought about that conversation was mostly I, this, we could probably save this for another time, but I was intrigued by your idea of using different time frames to determine the systems. Yes. Do you remember that? Yeah. So I do I, remember that. Yeah. yeah. I obviously disagreed with that so much. <laughs> so now you and I can get into it and we can talk about that on a future. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, so yeah. that's a really good topic of let's look at the past five years to determine the optimal system or 10 years and 15 years and have some diversification in our entries and exits, which I am for, but not in the way you described, which is using basically less data. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you're right. That would definitely mean less data than the full period uh, at all times. No, that's cool. Great point. Thanks for that. And thanks for listening so closely to what uh, we say. And I'm sure Rob is sitting there in his shed right now, nodding and smiling. So so that's perfect. On staying on the lighter topics, before we move on to the, uh, to the questions, I did observe a, a little article that said that, and I'm sure this is inspired by the continued optimism or euphoria euphoria in the stock market. But in Tokyo, there is now a, a, a new bar. And this is a bar for those who want to trade stock tips. And according to Bloomberg, uh, the bar is called Stock Pickers, by the way. It has been almost full every single day. And appropriately, you can order drinks like Lehman Shock, IT Bubble, or Margin Call at Stock Pickers. So that sounds like a great way to, to celebrate the current mania in some of these things. Now, the first question in is from Marcus. And by the way, Jerry, I think we've touched on some of these things, but we'll, of course, as we always do with people, we will answer them as best we can. Great podcast, love the content. I remember from an interview with the late John Borman, where he described his first connection to Jerry Parker on Twitter and meeting him later. John said he asked Jerry about shorting single equities, and Jerry replied he hadn't found a good way to do it. Now, I've noticed on this podcast, Jerry often say, do the longs and shorts, even on Tesla. My question is, does Jerry reverse his long trend rules for going short in single equities, or is it a totally different approach? Does he short single equities the same way as other asset classes? Some thought process about shorting single equities would be greatly appreciated. I think it's only right to use the same systematic approach, the same entry and exit rules and parameters for the longs and the shorts. And it's, as I said earlier, it's um, based upon uh, sample size. 
and we don't ever have enough sample size and we need a larger sample size than normal because we have non-normal distribution of trades. This I say all the time and no one adheres to it or agrees with it or, you know, but it's really one of the, those core concepts that come up that uh, everyone wants to ignore, but I don't think it's good to ignore it. I think, you know, what I, obviously it sounds a little contradictory, but on one hand, you know, we're going to do this back test. And when I would say, for instance, like everyone would say, shorts are not that great as longs and short stocks are not that great. That's the back test. So then on the other hand, I'm advocating, well, ignore that, you know, don't look at that. I haven't found a way to make the short trades or the short stock trades perform in the back test like the longs. But I'm ignoring that and saying, I don't even look at shorts and longs. I just look at the average trade. And because philosophically, I'm going to let my philosophy overrule the back test. And my philosophy is things can change. And at worst, the shorts should be taken. They're not negative, uh, usually. They make a little bit of money. And they're a good diversifier for the periods where the longs uh, don't do well. And for days, you know, the markets have a tendency sometimes in extreme days, so everything is up or everything is down. So it's always um, better if you possibly have longs and shorts all the t you know, as long, often as possible, even on a daily basis, even though right now I have almost no shorts, very few shorts versus a lot of longs because I'm going to not manufacture those shorts or that risk, better risk control portfolio. I'm just going to follow the trends. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think that's a great statement, by the way, that you let your philosophy override the back test. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people let the back test override anything else. And that's where it gets complicated, let's put it that way. So I love that, Jerry. Thanks for that. We got a question in from uh, Nathaniel. He writes, I'm a longtime listener and love the show. My question is about choosing markets when investing with limited capital. I've toyed with the idea of running my own system, though have not done so yet. One of the limitations of trading your own account that you have always uh, discussed in the past is the problem of limited capital. When your capital is sufficiently small, you cannot necessarily invest in 80 markets, even with only a single contract in each market. The solution that comes to mind is having a list of potential markets and only taking positions in a subset at any given time. The question then becomes, how do you choose that subset? Rob has talked about signal strength as a predictor of return, and if you would identify a reliable predictor, it would seem best to choose the subset with the highest predicted return. However, I know Jerry and others are dubious as to the potential value of such signals, and I have yet to identify one that is reliable. Do you have any suggestions in that regard? So that's question number one. Let's say with that, that was a long question. I've answered it already for you, but let's just go into that. <laughs> yeah, you know me, I'm always dubious about almost everything. But yeah, I don't, it's not that, I mean, I don't really have an opinion on signal strength. I'm not anti-signal strength. I don't know what that really means. It depends upon, show me what you mean by signal strength. To some degree, mm -hmm. when I buy soybeans before a soybean meal or corn, it's based upon signal strength, I guess, but it's basically saying, hey, the breakout happened in soybeans before it happened in corn. I'm not going to not do the corn because 
it's didn't the breakout in corn didn't occur. The breakout in corn occurred after soybeans, so I'm not going to not do corn or do less corn. I'm going to handle those trades independently, just like my back test. And who knows, corn can take over and become stronger. But I do think it really revolves around this fundamental principle, which is it's uh, for trend followers, you need to have a fixed portfolio. And you can't do the trade in soybeans today, but not do it tomorrow because it's not as strong. You know, all the math gods are seeing is you're not being disciplined and consistent. You're not taking all the trades and you've got to do that. So I would just choose like a grain or two and a currency or two, a bond market, the S&P possibly, then silver or gold. So one from each sector, copper, you know, or aluminum or both, you know, and crude or heating oil, something like that. And just try your best to get some diversification. And don't worry about missing a trade in heating oil that's going to be much bigger than crude. You didn't know it. The discipline of continuing to trade crude and not kick it out because of some indicator, you're going to be rewarded for that. And, you know, once again, a fundamental principle is if you're trading 50 markets, 100 markets, or five markets, all the trades have the same expectation because we don't segregate and look at the numbers. And in order to get the sample size, we have to assume that all the trades are the same as long as they're being created by the same systems and parameters. So you're not missing out, you're temporarily missing out. But over a lifetime of hundreds of years or a thousand years of experience and of backtesting, the theory is that all of the trend-following trades from a system would start to converge on themselves and you would in fact see that all of the trades are starting to have the same expectation. Yeah, and, and I would just add to that because I think I do think it's a great point that you make, Jerry. And I would just say to Nathaniel that yes, you're right, that you can't start with 80 markets and as Jerry suggests, start smaller. You also have to be aware of that it sounds like oh, but we're going to be missing winning trades by trading fewer markets, but you're also going to be missing even more losing trades because let's not forget that some sectors can go through 10 years of not making money. And it's still, you know, so so there's going to be a win and a loss uh, from not being able to do all the markets to begin with. So, so as Jerry said, don't get too concerned about it. The most important thing is to start, right? I mean, that's the the way we view it. And it's not about perfection because that doesn't exist uh, really. So, But you have a follow-up question, Nathaniel. So you write, an, an, an alternative I've considered is only going long or short when the term structure is in your favor. For example, you might have long signals in 40 markets, but 10 of them might be in backwardation. If you invest further out the curve, the backwardation uh, and those 10 markets would provide a tailwind for long investments this would seem to serve to improve returns while providing a method of choosing among markets. The obvious risk is that you could end up with trading markets that don't have significant trends and miss something like a 30-year bull run in bonds. But that seems to be a criticism of any strategy that doesn't invest in all markets. In limited testing of this idea, I have seen some success, but I recall on the past episode that you uh, may have doubted the value of this idea as well. Do you have any thoughts about this strategy? Sorry for the long question, and thanks for your answers. Thank you, Nathaniel, for for uh, that. I mean, from my point of view, maybe just to jump in first, Jerry, on this. One of the things about again, what we what we, I think what we all advocate on the podcast is really not to make things too complicated and having 
too many rules about how the shape of the curve should be and so on and so forth in terms of trend following. I think you can easily get get yourself into trouble by doing so. But the other point I wanted to just mention, uh, Nathaniel, and that is the further out you go, the less liquid these markets will be, which is another challenge you're going to face if you trade outside, usually the front month or, or two, in at least some of the markets. So just be aware of that as well. What, what are your thoughts, Jerry? I've looked at things like that, and I don't think it's worth uh, using a filter like that, you know, because it goes against, you know, the idea that we can never miss a trend. And with an outlier-type strategy, that a strategy that's going to rely upon outliers to provide all of the profits, the net profits, all of a sudden, if we get that wrong, and once in history or twice in history, actually do get a mega trend when that particular filter is off, is signaling that it's not a worthwhile trade, then all the numbers will suddenly change. Oh, then that filter is not so good. I just had a 200 ATR move. Now the back test says, oh, the filter is not that great. So I'm anti-filter. Once again, it doesn't make sense from a risk-reward. I'm going to risk 30 bips. I'm not going to do the trade because I don't want to lose 30 bips. Or and I'm possibly going to miss out on a big, huge trend that is unlikely. So once again, I'm very skeptical of these back tests and things like that. Anything that uh, prevents you from not doing a trade. We've got to hit these breakouts irrespective of the back test. And the whole idea of refining our entries and having a higher win percentage is anti-ethical to what we're trying to go for. Yeah, no, great stuff. Last question today is from Nick. Hi, Nick. Nick writes, I have really been enjoying the podcast and have gained a lot from it, so much that I've been inspired to write in with a question. I've had the, my greatest success trading small and micro-cap stocks listed on the ASX using a systematic approach. These stocks tend to be very volatile and prone to market manipulation, brackets, pump, and dumps. This thus means that positions need to be kept smaller to manage risk. Do you have any thoughts on the benefits of risk of trading smaller positions on more volatile stocks versus larger positions on more stable markets. I guess since you are the only one, at least of the two of us, who trades on single stocks, and I know you don't pick small stocks as far as I recall, but have you ever looked at this? And, and generally speaking, I guess one thing that might be a little bit relevant to other markets like Bitcoin, I mean, are there some advantages in trading hugely volatile markets compared to markets like bonds that are generally, quote-unquote, more stable? probably from a commission point of view, but I think it's a better to trade all of the markets with this ATR, inverse ATR approach, where you look at the, on the day of, the, of your entry, you look at the recent average true range and size the positions inversely to, to that. So, and what you're trying to go for is you're giving, I think primarily, well, maybe even 100% would be that all I'm trying to do is normalize the size of my losses. That's it. That's where we really start to part company with the vol targeting people. So, I mean, sometimes I'll say like, well, I'm going to give each position the same upside potential. I don't even know if that's true. It's probably just that I want to risk a number of ATRs for each position, the same number, three, four, five, six, seven ATRs. I'm going to have the same dollar risk i'm going to lose my 30 bips but it's really not even just 30 bips it's the same dollar amount 
So when I normalize these losses and give every trade, treat them all the same, give them the same amount of room. So I essentially turn my Euro dollar, where I have hundreds of contracts on, into the same thing as my S&P, which I have a few contracts on. They're both treated the same because I'm taking into consideration their recent ATR. Yeah, no, absolutely. Great question, Nick. Um, thanks very much for that. And thanks very much to all of you who send in questions for this week. Next week, Moritz is on. So if you have questions for Moritz, by all means, send them to info at toptradersonplug.com. We will look forward to digging into those. In terms of performance for the month of March, I decided to do it for the month of March rather than including a couple of days of April. So it was a strong month. The BTOP50 index was up 71 basis points, up 2.5% for the year so far in Q1. SockGen Trend Index up just short of 80 basis points, up 2.4% for the year. SockGen Trend Index up 87 basis points, up 3.75% for the year. And the SockGen Short-Term Traders Index was up about half a percent in March and up nearly 2% so far. This year, Trend Barometer, I think I mentioned that, finished at 41, which is a little bit soft, but it doesn't didn't prevent people from making money. And the Bridge Alternative Index, the Flat Fee Index, was up half a percent in March, up 3.68% so far this year. Jerry, any anything else you want to bring up? Anything you've come across this week in terms or in the last couple of weeks in, co- in terms of some content? We've talked about one piece of content we both enjoyed, which was the conversation that Don had with Mike over his podcast. Anything else? I just encourage people to get on Clubhouse and look for Niels and me and continue some of these conversations in a kind of slightly different format that enhances this podcast for sure and creates some loyalty and some camaraderie so we can talk to some of our friends and people who love uh, this podcast. I recommend, you know, I love listening to podcasts of famous traders and people who have differences of, of opinion so I can possibly learn something. But uh, the RCM derivative, the derivative podcast recently have been good. The ones in March that I like, uh, Rotella and Niederhofer, guys who've been in the managed futures CTA business a long time. And I'd say pretty different from me, but still a lot of good nuggets of wisdom out there. And so I'm always on the search for that, even though I come across as very opinionated and intolerant of uh, other views. I'm really not, you know, I'm like uh, my whole career, I've just read and tried to find out anything that these really smart guys or girls are saying, especially if it has anything to do with trend following. So I encourage that podcast. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree, completely agree with that. And also, I would, I mean, completely agree with the fact that I think it's fine to be, you know, have strong opinions and yet be open to other people's. But I think it is important that we have the confidence in what we believe in so we don't get swayed every time we hear another podcast. Oh, I should be doing that. I should be doing that. So, yeah, absolutely. We, I think that's why we all listen to other podcasts. We all read a lot of white papers to see if there's something that we can learn. And hopefully that's what people do for the same reason when they listen to our conversations. Is there something here we can learn? We don't want people to think like us necessarily, but we do want people to think. That's step number one. And and I think hopefully we can contribute in our small part to do that. Of course, we know that people that listen to our podcast, their time is a great but unrenewable resource. So we do appreciate everyone taking time every week for one or two hours to 
to learn with us, to fail and get up with us, but to more importantly, to walk together and figuring out how to best trade and invest in these uncertain times. And as Jerry said, if you want to join us for one of our conversations up Clubhouse, be sure to follow us uh, there as well. And of course, if you really like what we do, and we hope you do, then please go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. We, uh, we need more because it helps other people discover the podcast. As mentioned, next week, Moritz is here. Send in your questions, info at toptradersonplug.com. In the meantime, from Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, happy Easter, stay safe, and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.